0: Namo Tasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddha Sa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sam Sa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sam Sa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and fully self-enlightened one. So just an opportunity to, um, you know, just reflect on the Buddha's life. We all, we all know, I think most of us know, the, the general outlay of the life, but just to contemplate it a little and to see how it fits in with the uh, this um, taking of refuges and precepts. So remember, um, could, I, could you open that window, Ruth? Yeah. Um, Remember that he, he belonged to this uh, warrior caste, the kshatriya class, which, uh, you know, would be the sort of landed gentry, really, and with plenty of time on their hands, unlike the, the workers. Uh, of course, in those days, they lived according to the seasons, so there's always one season where you don't do much, you know, like the dry season and the winter season and all that. But even so, uh, he would have had a much more relaxed and easy life than most uh, people of his time. And, um, you know, if we, if we try to match it with, with ourselves, you know, our society, uh, you know, seeking for distraction, or seeking for pleasure all the time. And uh, this comes out in one of his little tales, remember, when he wakes up in the morning after a, you know, an old night reveling and just sees all these people in disgusting positions and whatnot, not, and, <laughs> and he sort of uh, turns him off. I mean, that's one of the things, that the evanescence or the, the emptiness of sensual pleasure. The other story, of course, uh, is about you know, meeting these four uh, messengers from the gods, as they're known. Basically, he becomes much more aware of sickness, old age, and death. And the fact that there are people who seem to be sitting under trees, and he's and he wonders, you know, what they're about. And the, there's a suggestion with the ascetics that there may be a way out of this constant rebirth. So, remember, in his day, the idea, well, as in India and and the East today, it's taken for granted that there is a rebirthing process from life after life. Uh, but um, uh, so 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 that. That had a a very poignant feeling for him because uh, what was up for a being was this constant being reborn into lifetimes and lifetimes of uh, being born, growing, sickness, old age, death, being born, growing, sickness, old age, and death, and it seems to have been an obsession of the times. And there was a movement of the times where more and more men, mainly, uh, were just leaving the home, the home life and going off uh, to do these various practices. And there were various practices which were on offer. But uh, when he left home, uh, the one that he seemed to move towards were the, what came to be known as the jhanas, these absorption states. That was seemingly his first effort. And uh, the idea there was that, you know, you can create this internal happiness without anything from the outside. So, practicing metta, for instance, we can keep making that intention until the heart responds, and eventually you're just filled with this inner bliss, this inner ecstasy, you might say. And once you can do that, well, it's all right, isn't it? You can sit under a tree. You don't mind eating rotten sausages, anything like that, or cold chips. doesn't matter, does it? You can just sit under a tea and be happy any time you want because it's there within your power to create a beautiful mental state. But on both occasions, with both teachers who took him into these various different levels of ecstasy, uh, he always came out and seemingly rediscovered the same old sad, depressed, anxious uh, Siddhartha Gautama. <laughs> like nothing had really moved at the level of his psychology. Nothing had been cleansed and he was still worried about it all, I presume. And then he tries mortification exercises. And the idea there is that the real problem is the body. So if you think about it, if the body never felt hungry, you wouldn't feel greed. So basically you stop eating and you you just eat bits of rice and stuff like that. And as long as you keep your your body appetites down, then you don't get the problems with sensual pleasure. Uh, But he discovered that the only thing he gained from that was, uh, basically became thin and thin. and it was nothing but more suffering. He didn't actually gain anything from that at all. He said it was unprofitable, ignoble, and suffering. So um, he left that, if you remember, and to the disgust of his five companions, because they were still all for it. And it's, uh, he's sitting by the, the roadside there when Sujata comes along with an offering of, of some sort of rice pudding which he takes. It seems to have revived him a bit, as you know, <laughs> as you know, rice pudding can. And this is when he remembers this occasion in childhood. And this is why we say he's self-enlightened, you see. Up until then, he's tried all these different means and, and, and ways, and it's not really got him anywhere. But it's this memory from childhood which opens up for him a possibility of uh, investigating Um, his condition, and the memory is of watching his father doing a plowing ceremony, but it's the manner of watching, you see, that childlike curiosity which he then takes with him under this tree, making a very clear resolution that he was either going to crack this one or die, that's a pretty heavy evolution isn't it, and luckily for for those, and for him, uh, six hours on, he sort of makes this uh, wonderful insight this wonderful uh, understanding um, and that curiosity that awareness and curiosity the way of looking then becomes the very technique that he passes on to other people and we call that Vipassana okay? and what we're celebrating on a day like this is, is the effort that this person made 2,500 years ago to seek the end of suffering and when he came to encapsulate all his teaching you know 40 years of of talking to people about his understanding uh, he could he could draw it down in the Pali just to three words suffering and the end of suffering dukkha and the end of and the end of dukkha so this dukkha remember is a very wide meaning it's not just suffering as we would normally call it it's dissatisfaction it's it's existential angst you know, even the mildest discomfort all happens to be Dukkha, you know. And uh, he spends the rest of his life uh, teaching this. So this is, uh, this is, I think, very important to, to grasp, that the awakening that came to him didn't pull him out of existence, didn't sort of make him sit there, you know, like a useless log or something. He then got up. He, there, was a, there was a movement of that wisdom down into an attitude and into an action. So the wisdom became compassion, just as an, as an outward flow. Um, logically speaking, there's, there's no reason why he should have done it, apart from the fact of that empathy with all beings. And as you know, there was a moment of uh, doubt as to whether anybody would understand it, and some people translate that as a doubt as to whether he, would, whether he would teach or not, but I don't think that's right. I think it's the doubt as, as really as to whether anybody would understand it or not. He definitely wanted to pass on this message, and uh, he walks quite away, doesn't he, from Bodgaya to Isipatana Park to uh, catch up with his old companions. When he gets to his old companions, of course, they, uh, they think he's, you know he's, he's just become lax and he's He's lost it, you know. So they don't really greet him with uh, with any uh, friendliness or anything. But as they as he comes towards them, they see something different about him and actually prepare a seat for him as if he's a teacher. Now, it's very interesting because when he talks to them in the first beginning, what is recorded is, he, he asks him. he says, Have you ever heard me talking like this before? See? So in other words, um, he's, he's asking them... Having displayed his teaching as best as he can, this is his first effort, you might say, and uh, he's asking them, have, "Have you ever heard me say anything like this before?" You see, and that's what convinces them to uh, to practice with him, and um, the four of them eventually um, become uh, fully liberated through his teachings. So and when we um, take the refuge. Uh, in terms of taking refuge in the Buddha, that's what we're taking refuge in. We're taking refuge in a personage and the truth of his, of his message, which is the Dharma. And those people who after him uh, were able to liberate themselves and become witnesses of that very teaching. So those are your three refuges in, shall we say, the traditional way. Right? The tradition is that we're taking refuge in this personage. And this personage is not only our exemplar, remember, he's actually an archetype, in the sense that we all have to travel through that same path in our own way to become uh, fully liberated. So we have to eventually renounce the world as a place where we can find permanent happiness. So long as there's a part of us seeking happiness in the phenomenal world, uh, there'll be no escape from the problems that indulgence, brings to us see so at some point through our practice there has to be this renunciation um that scares people because you think well i will just end up being a being a, a prune like ascetic you know i'll end up being just a dry prune it's nobody that's not very not very uh <laughs> attractive <laughs> is it but <laughs> but It it wouldn't be if it weren't that, of course, as you give up something, you receive something back, which are the spiritual gifts. And the obvious ones are the seven uh, factors of enlightenment, which include calmness, equanimity, um, this joy that comes with interest. And the heart then responds, begins to uh, express in its attitude the wisdom you have, and you end up with this beautiful heart, this beautiful mind. Uh, especially in the four illimitables—love, compassion, joy, and peace—and then that flows outward into the way you speak, into what you do, and into your livelihood. So it's not as though we're giving something up, for, you know, for, for nothing. You are, we're actually giving something up for something which is far greater. Our the problem is that you don't know really what you're going to get until you give it, until you give something up. Yeah. So remember, it's not like getting rid of your old TV or something, and you know which one you're going to get, the new plasma. I mean, that's, that's pretty strange. <laughs> you know, like, there's no angst there, is there? You know? But unfortunately, in the spiritual life, you don't quite know what you're going to get when you give something up. And you have to actually give it up before you, you get something. And it's not, as though, uh, it's not as though you can half give it up. You know, say, well, I'll, I'll give it up a little bit and just see what's coming because <laughs> then no, nothing much comes. There has to be a, a sort of renunciation of, uh, of seeking happiness in the sensual world. But again, uh, we all do it in our, own, in our own time. There's no rush about this. According to the Buddha's understanding, so long as there's a self, there will be some form of becoming. There'll be some form of existence. So it's never, we're never going to be short on time. So we can relax. Now, um, in terms of taking refuge and precepts um, as our personal process of liberation, the Buddha here taking refuge in the Buddha really means taking having the uh, the understanding and the confidence that there is something within us to be liberated. That's what you're really spiritually taking your refuge in, uh, and the Dharma is that specific teaching. Uh, which will help you to attain that liberation. Yeah? And the Sangha, it, really you can extend it to anybody and everybody who's actually helping you on the path. So that's the purpose of taking these refuges and precepts. Now, uh, for those of you who haven't taken them before, who might like to take them, remember that uh, it's, not, it's not that you have to take them for life or anything like that one takes them with, with the, an honest heart um, it's interesting because when you join the order and become a monk or a nun in the Buddhist order um, in the whole ceremony uh, there's no time mentioned no, there's, there's no question about um, how long do you expect to stay or there's no vow that I will be in the order until death do us part it doesn't, like, there isn't anything like that so that means that it's a, it's a constant reaffirmation every day. You have to reaffirm, reconfirm your commitment to the monastic order. And that's exactly the same with these Refugees and Precepts. So it's, it's like every day there should be a point where you reconfirm your commitment to the spiritual life. You see. So <clears throat> what we'll do is just take a little bit of silence and during that time... Uh, you know, just contemplate what taking refuges and precepts means to you and, and, and give it your own particular uh, meaning, see? So that when we take it, it, it's actually something that is directly impinging and affecting, hopefully for the better, your life, your lifestyle. Okay. So if we can just sit quietly for a little, for a few minutes... The uh, next part is to, take the, uh, to undertake the five uh, training rules. So, the understanding here, the Sikapada, the, the footsteps of training, they're not commandments, you see, they're not thou shalt not, they are I undertake the training rule. And what, we, what I think we have to understand is that virtue and the, enlight- the awakening come together. You can't have the one without the other. You know, you can't have a Buddha caught shoplifting. It just doesn't, it doesn't strike you as true. (laughs) There's something odd about that. So this uh, purification of our morality, purification of our intention, that's what it basically is. The purification of our intention runs hand in hand with the process of insight. And one of the, um, one of the effects of insight is to, is to actually see how um, moral, moral actions actually cause us suffering. I mean, we're pretty pretty clear about things like uh, you know, guilt and shame and remorse and all that. Uh, but also, there's the, whenever we do harm, there's also the pain within us eventually of knowing that we've caused, we've been at least a catalyst for somebody else's suffering. And that that can be quite painful for us to actually deal with. So, what we need to do is to keep making that resolution of following these precepts as best we can. Uh, We can't expect to follow them absolutely perfectly because we we don't have that uh, perfection of of mind. But at least on a gross level, uh, most of us, I think, have have stopped murdering and thieving. So... (laughs) It's, it's more on on the more subtle levels of um, of doing harm that we can become more aware of our actions eh? when it comes to you know that uh, the one that I think a lot of people have difficulty with is I undertake not to take uh, intoxicating drinks <laughs> and drugs, and we live in a in a culture where uh, you know taking a drop of alcohol is is quite acceptable, so it's up to you really to decide as to what is what you feel is allowable. And um, and to know that whenever you, uh, whenever the mind is, whenever consciousness is distorted in any way, then there's always a possibility of doing something which is harmful. So it's it's up to us to decide at what level we want to take these trainings. So the the um, the conjunction of virtue and understanding come together. You can't have the one without the other. And again, the Buddha manifests this by this movement from right understanding to right attitude. And from right attitude into right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And remember that this this path reverts upon itself. You can start with right livelihood, and it will affect your attitude. So, uh, it doesn't really matter what you do, you know that old song. It ain't what you do; it's the way that you do it. It's it's actually having a right intention that your work is of service, and that immediately begins to affect the the heart base as a compassion. And compassion, when we when we begin to experience compassion and love that way, we begin to understand it at, as interconnectedness. And from interconnectedness, you begin to understand that. The, this idea of me uh, is really a composite, which is affected by all my relationships. See, so it takes away this sense of I, begins to undermine the sense of I, and the I is always this sense of self is always expressing <coughs> itself is always trying to find happiness for itself. So when we go out into work as a selfless a selfless attitude as a, an attitude of of um, of service that immediately undermines the, the the self as something which is always seeking its own pleasure. See, so this uh, this movement of from understanding into the heart as attitude and outwards as action, uh, you know, you can take it both ways. And whatever your work is, it's it's for us to find the reason for doing it, which Will, will be a virtuous reason and the effect upon the heart and the mind will just naturally arise. Just as the other way, when we sit in meditation with Vipassana and there's some insight, it has an effect on our attitude and eventually into the way we, we work. So it doesn't matter where you start on this particular um, path, whether it's as, a, as an understanding or as a right attitude or as a right action, the effect will be systemic. Yeah? So the thing about the refute, the, the, the precepts is to uh, just take them at your own level of understanding, at your own level of commitment, constantly just pushing yourself gently towards a more a more virtuous life. See? Don't put don't put unnecessary pressure on, on we know there's no need to put unnecessary pressure on ourselves. You always work from the base where you are, and you gently lean. So this is the Buddha's words: to incline towards Mibana. So if you lean, if you lean forward, fine. enough, you take a step, see. You just, <laughs> all you got to do is just lean in the right direction. Yeah. So uh, let's just spend a few minutes, uh, just a couple of minutes there, just reflecting upon um, our virtue and what it means to take the refuge, the the precepts. So what we can do now is actually take them. Um, We'll also read the verses at the back of the sheet, which is basically our Vipassana verses, and then some inspiring um, verses from the Buddha. And then before we say Sadhu Sadhu, uh, we'll get Mickey to pour this water while I do a little chanting. And that's the (coughs) the, the, uh, basic chant of offering uh, goodwill to all beings. And... uh, during that time, you can offer whatever merit you have for the benefit of uh, whomever you wish, but it's always good to end off with all beings. That's all. Okay. So, um, in the, in the uh, fashion of taking reference and precepts, uh, you have to chant it after me. Okay. <clears throat> Namo Tasa Hold on, stop. You have to chant it after me. Because I'm, I'm passing it on to you. you <laughs> Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sambha Sambuddha Namo Tasa Bagawato Arahato Samma Sambudasa Namo Tasa Bagawato Arahato Samma Sambudasa Namo Tasa Bagawato Arahato Samma Namo tassa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato, Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambudasa Budang Saranang Gacchami Budang Gacchami Damang Saranagat Chami, Damang Saranagat Chami, Sangang Saranagat Chami, Sangang Saranagat Chami, Duti Dutyampe, Damang Sarananga Charmi. Dutyampe, Damang Sarananga Charmi. Dutyampe, Damang Sarananga Charmi. Dutyampe, Sangang, Sarananga Charmi. Dutyampe, Sangang, Sarananga Charmi. Tatiampi bodang Tatiampi saranam gachami. Tatiampi damang saranang gachami. gachami. Patiampisangam Panati pata, where sikapadang Panati pata, Adi we dhāna Ve rāmani Sikāpadāṃ Samādhi āmi Adi na rāmani Sikāpadāṃ Samādhi āmi Kāmei sumi Chācāra rāmani Sikāpadāṃ Samādhi āmi sumi Sikapadam Samādhyāmi Musawada, where Sikapadang Samadiyami Musawada, where ameni Sikapadang Samadiyami Sura Mereya Wey ramani sikkapadam samadhi ami. Suraneya majja pamadatana. Wey ramani sikkapadam samadhi ami. Tissa rane saha panchasila sarukang katwa apamade So we can read these Vipassana verses. All conditioned things are impermanent. When this is perceived with wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with what cannot satisfy. Just this is the path of purification. All conditioned things are unsatisfactory. When this is perceived with wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with what cannot satisfy. Just this is the path of purification. All conditioned things and the unconditioned are not self. When this is perceived with wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with what cannot satisfy. Just this is the path of purification. There is the unborn, the undying, the uncreated, the unconditioned, Refuge, harbour and home, perfect contentment and peace. Just as the great ocean has only one taste, the taste of salt, so nibana has only one taste, the taste of freedom. All conditioned things have the nature to decay. Work diligently for your liberation. So we can ask Mickey to pour the water for us. And uh, <coughs> while I do this little chanting, to um, bring to bring to mind your goodwill, and to offer it to yourself, to to whoever you wish, and to all beings. Okay. Yeah. Puritimaya disaya, Dakinaya disaya, Pachimaya disaya, Uttaraya disaya. Purati Maya Nudisaya Dakinaya Nudisaya Pachimaya Nudisaya Uttaraya Nudisaya, hetimaya disaya uprimaya disayam Sabesata Sabepana Sabebutta Sabe Pukala sabe pariyapana, Saba Itiyo Sabe Purisa Sabe Arya Sabe Anaria, Sabe Deva Sabe Manusa Sabe Winipatika Avera Hon Tu Abhyabhajya Hon Aniga Hon Tu Sukhi Dukhamu Chantu Yadalada Sampatito Mavika Chantu